Hey everyone, welcome to the Prince of Peace podcast, where our aim is to help you live and love like Jesus. I'm Lauren Hlaud, one of the pastors of Prince of Peace. We're glad that you're here and we hope you enjoy. Hey there, thanks for listening. This week's sermon was preached by Pastor Jonathan Eilert, and it was Christ the King Sunday. So his sermon deals with this concept of Christ as King. What does it mean for Jesus to be referred to as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? I hope that you get something out of this week's message, and without further ado, here's Pastor Jonathan's sermon. Grace, peace, and joy be unto you from God the Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Once upon a time, the image of Christ the King was celebrated without question, but in recent years, the image has been questioned more and more due to the oppressive nature of some feudal regimes as we look back over history. The question is, do we want Christ to be linked to such an antiquated patriarchal system? And the question's been on my mind this last month as I was serving as part of the editing team for the prayers in next year's Lutheran worship resource. And whenever we use language that's related to monarchical images, we try to look at it from all angles to make sure that it makes sense from the perspective of what we want to communicate about the nature of our God. While I'm not an advocate of reading ourselves of this ancient biblical image, I do think we should be somewhat discerning about what kind of king we are referring to. And one of the most important questions is, what exactly is he king of? Which brings us to our gospel lesson for today. Pilate is asking a rather direct question, are you a king? And Jesus proceeds to tell him about his kingdom, which is not of this world. Pilate, now possibly thinking that Jesus is being sarcastic with him, asks more emphatically, so you are a king? And Jesus then gives this incredible reply, you say that I am a king. For this I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. So here I think we have this answer to Pilate's question. It has nothing to do with the kind of military power that you would often associate with a king that Pilate would be most worried about. No, here Jesus declares himself to be the king of truth. But then there's this interesting omission from the lectionary text. For some reason, when they're putting together this lectionary, they left off the final verse in this last part of the story. In this very next verse, Pilate asks the age-old question, what is truth? Which I think brings a rather fascinating ending to this exchange between Pilate and Jesus. Are you a king? My kingdom's not from this world. So you are a king. I'm the king of truth. Well, what is truth? There's so much here in this short exchange And to come away from this passage knowing that Jesus is king actually doesn't nearly answer as many questions as it raises. Jesus does not let himself fall into. In fact, he doesn't fall into the categories of power easily understood in this world. 
He says it very plainly here, my kingdom is not of this world. He's not even necessarily saying here that he is a king. He's saying he reigns over a kingdom of truth. Well, now we're getting somewhere, but not really, because what exactly is truth? And this, of course, is a question for all the ages. One that philosophers and scientists wrestle with all of the time. It's something all of us start working on very early in life. Is the truth something that is situational, or is it something that is immutable and constant? And I'm sure all parents have watched their children sometimes painfully sort out the meaning of truth in their lives. We've seen a beautiful young woman over there cantering this weekend, but once upon a time she was a three-year-old girl with apparently sticky fingers. And so it was one time that I found this pretty bead laying on the floor, and I wasn't sure where it came from, and I didn't recognize it. And I asked Suzanne, hey, you know where this bead came from? And she said, no. And a little bit later I saw Margaret, and I said, oh, hey, Margaret, do you know where this bead came from? Well, it sure didn't come from the craft store. And it gets even more complicated as our children get older. We were talking with some friends the other day, and their daughter had recently had a second traffic violation. She'd already lost her license once. She's only 17, and so mom was now wondering, well, what's going to happen the second time? How complicated is this going to be? And then this is where the story gets really interesting because now it gets wrapped up with the the problem of privilege as well. Because the mom works at an exclusive school, knows one of the city prosecutors, and so she called the prosecutor just to figure out what exactly is going to happen with her daughter. And he said, well, well, what happened? She tells him the story. She had rear-ended someone on a bridge in the middle of traffic. It wasn't a particularly big deal. And he's like, boy, that seems kind of odd that they would have cited, oh, it was an off-duty officer that, that wrote the ticket out. He's like, well, we'll just make an amendment to the charge, and uh, you're not going to have to worry about it. And Diane said, well, I wasn't calling to have this taken away. I, I just wanted to know exactly what was going on and what, how this would be handled. And now this mom's worried about how she portrays the truth because to make the amendment, they're now going to say that there was a broken taillight on the car or something, and that's what had happened. She's like, but that's not true. And the prosecutor said, that doesn't matter. We do this all the time. And so she goes to court with her daughter. She sees all of these other young people there in juvenile court that don't have someone that knows a prosecutor that have to deal with all of these things. And she's actually advocating for her daughter to have more of a charge and maybe have to do some kind of a diversion program instead. And they just look at her and say, no, this is done. Go on, get out of here. Pay your court costs. You're, you're done. And the mom's now wondering, what do I tell my daughter about what the truth means and how we understand this as she moves forward in her life and she grows up? So throughout our lives, we are sorting out the truth from minute details of our lives to the bigger, complex questions on a societal and global scale. What is the truth that should guide us in a given situation? And there are no shortage of people out there who are happy to fill in the blanks with a whole variety of answers, and there are no shortage of those that are happy to hold up the words of Jesus to say that given their careful study, they have figured it all out. But I don't know that Jesus even fully answers the question. He certainly didn't that day. It's left floating out there for us to ponder its significance. 
Yet the temptation remains in the midst of an insecure and changing world to grasp on to some absolute truth. And there are plenty out there again that claim to have it, and given all the uncertainty, it's tempting to cling to their answers that they will give passionately and forcefully. But we also know how often we're burned by clinging to truths of this world that are later to be revealed to be anything but the truth. And we know from continual discoveries in science that truth, even in that world, can have a relative quality. Listen to how one physicist from Harvard describes her understanding. Do I believe in absolute truth? I believe in effective theories. So let me tell you what an effective theory is. An effective theory says basically that I can, if, if I can't measure something, um, I don't have to worry about it in the sense that, for example, let's take Noonan's laws. Noonan's laws work just fine, but we know that eventually um, we have to take into account relativity if things were going really fast, or we have to take into account quantum mechanics if we were looking on really tiny scales. But for the scales we observe, you don't have to worry about the fact that that a ball is made up of atoms. It's perfectly fine to think of it as a ball with some mass because you would never be able to measure the effects of the atoms on the ball when you're just throwing the ball. So I guess I believe that we, there's a truth that we know because it applies to the world as we've seen it, as we've measured it. That's not to say that there can't be other underlying truths that you can see if you, can if you could really see things better, if you could test them better, if you could measure them better. Um, so I think anything we know could be upset if you look at regimes outside of the regime of which we've studied them. So, but that's not to say the truth isn't absolute. It's as absolute at the scales that we've seen it. But it's just not absolute in the sense of applying it at the most fundamental scale. It's a fascinating thought to think about truths and the truths that lie beneath them. In fact, even to, to give an example of this, because I realize that probably ought, as I say that applies to lots of areas, I probably ought to say a little bit about what, what that might look like. Thinking about that in relationship to a movie that uh, Margaret was going to see last night that's out there right now, The Green Book. And on the surface, it looks like a wonderful movie, and it probably is. And it helps to reveal a truth of the, the, the nastiness of racism and, and what that's meant for our country. But there's another underlying truth to that movie, that the family of the black musician that's represented in the movie isn't particularly happy with the portrayal of it. And there are questions about another movie from a white producer about a black life instead of it coming from a black voice. And so there are always in our world these truths that seem very evident, but there are often truths that lie beneath them, and we have to take all of that into account as we look and try to understand our world with humility. So how does Jesus approach this question of truth? Well, it seems that he intentionally leaves some blanks here today. And there's good reason for this here and now in our world, for the reality is that the fullness of truth to which Jesus points is the truth of the kingdom that is yet to come. That has not yet been fully revealed here and now. If we really have a handle on the fullness of truth, well, would we have all of the hunger and violence and division that spans our globe? Well, I certainly hope not. But Jesus certainly didn't leave us without anything either. Throughout his life and ministry, he was constantly pointing the signs of the truth 
revealed in part now, even as we anticipate the fullness that will come in the final victory. We may not always know what the fullness of truth looks like now, but we do know that it's marked by forgiveness, grace, justice, and love. In the resurrection meal, we say that we get a foretaste of the feast that is to come. And a meal where all are welcomed and showered and comforted with the unconditional love of the One who gave His life for us, we get a taste of the truth of Christ. And indeed, it tastes very good. We may not know the fullness of truth now, but we know where we want to be, where the King of truth reigns triumphant forever. So in our lives, we seek to see beyond what the world offers. We seek to look at this broken world filled with broken promises and half-truths to look at the world through the lens of God's love and justice that comes to us in Jesus. We seek to know what we can of the truth now, trusting in the King of truth to reveal it all in His final glory. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Prince of Peace podcast. I hope that today's message has brought comfort and inspiration to your life. Have a great rest of the week.